This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Stigma still surrounds HIV-AIDS. In some parts of the world, it's still a dominant killer. But in the U.S. and in many Western countries, it's a disease that no longer is equated with an automatic death sentence. New diagnoses are down in this country. The CDC says over the last decade, there's been a 19% decline in new cases. Today, where we live, we look back over the last 35 years since the discovery of HIV-AIDS. UConn has three current exhibitions tracing the progression of the disease, and we'll talk with one of the curators about what's included and what prompted his interest. Later, we'll be joined by Connecticut residents living with HIV, one diagnosed before a consistent treatment was introduced, another after the introduction of successful antiretroviral medications. And we'll talk with a Yale researcher about the advances in HIV-AIDS prevention. Are you living with HIV or know someone who is? What did the diagnosis mean to you? And how are you living with the virus or the disease? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. As always, you can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me now in studio is Dr. Thomas Lawrence Long, Associate Professor in Residence in the Yukon School of Nursing and Curator of the school's Josephine, Josephine A. Dolan Collection of Nursing History. Welcome to where we live, Tom. Thank you very much, Lucy. So there's three exhibitions um, at UConn this fall that focus on HIV-AIDS. Where did this idea come from? Well, a a couple of years ago, I taught a course uh, at UConn on AIDS and culture. And one of the things that struck me was that most of our undergraduates have never lived in a world without AIDS. And uh, it also struck me that many of them were completely unaware of the struggles uh, that uh, HIV-infected people and their friends and family encountered uh, during the uh, worst years of the 1980s. And I I knew that they needed to understand that history of activism, uh, the history of government inaction during much of the 1980s. And so as we approached this 35th anniversary, um, I began to talk with uh, curators in the Yukon Archives and Special Collections and the Benton Museum of Arts uh, in order to, uh, to mark this important milestone. At the same time, the National Library of Medicine has a traveling exhibit uh, that was available at this time as well. So there's three exhibitions. What will people see when they go to the school? Well, when they go to UConn's uh, Archives and Special Collections in the Dodd Center, they're going to see a a special exhibit uh, prepared by Graham Stinnett, who is the uh, archivist for human rights and alternative publications, they're going to see an exhibit of alternative publications uh, related to the AIDS epidemic. Early in the AIDS epidemic, it was grassroots organizations uh, that prepared uh, safer sex and risk reduction uh, printed materials. Uh, it was alternative presses and alternative publishers that published some of the first novels and plays related to uh, uh, HIV-AIDS. When they go to the Benton Museum in the Balcony Gallery area, They're going to see a very fine exhibit curated by Jean Nihul, uh, one of the curators at the Benton Museum, um, that is uh, related to, well, we're calling it visual aids, Mm -hmm. and it's directly related to uh, art, uh, graphics, images uh, uh, during the uh, HIV-AIDS epidemic's worst years, uh, as well as some uh, 
uh, what we might call post-AIDS, uh, representations of the body uh, and sexuality uh, that emerged uh, from that. Finally, in the School of Nursing, just opened this week, uh, people will see the National Library of Medicine's exhibit, as well as an exhibit case that I've prepared uh, of uh, artifacts related to nursing and nursing care, um, uh, safer sex and risk reduction materials, educational materials, uh, popular culture, uh, video, uh, fiction, film, uh, some of those kinds of artifacts. You have an interesting perspective um, in the 80s uh, when HIV and AIDS was first discovered. Tell us about um, what you were doing. Well, I have two deep uh, connections to AIDS. During most of the 1980s, I was a Roman Catholic priest in the Diocese of Richmond, Virginia, and I was one of a few clergy who could be uh, reliably called upon to minister to people living with AIDS and to their partners and families and friends. Uh, so I was spending a lot of time in hospitals uh, in, uh, with people at their homes uh, and a lot of time in uh, conducting funerals uh, and memorial services. At the same time, uh, as a gay man who during the 1970s had done a lot of things that put me at risk for HIV infection, I constituted part of a, a cohort of my generation that were known as the worried well. Um, we didn't know if we were infected. Uh, we all assumed we were infected. Um, there was a debate about whether it was even worth uh, uh, taking the HIV test. Uh, because there were no adequate treatments uh, for uh, managing HIV. So it was a time of tremendous uh, grief and a time of tremendous anxiety for me and, and for many others. Can you talk, walk us through the stigma uh, that surrounded HIV AIDS, especially um, how society viewed gay men at the time? Well, let me give you one very pointed example. Um, as you are no doubt aware, the Republican administration of Ronald Reagan was uh, uh, entrenched in a kind of conservative uh, Christian fundamentalist mentality, resisted providing um, uh, AIDS education early on. And, and in fact, it wasn't until 1987 when tens of thousands had died from AIDS that Ronald Reagan even mentioned AIDS at a press conference. Early on in the epidemic, um, uh, reporters asked uh, uh, Larry Speaks, uh, Reagan's uh, press secretary, uh, about AIDS and about the uh, uh, administration's response to AIDS. And Speaks laughed and said to them, I don't know anybody with AIDS. Do you? So that was the kind of, uh, it was a joke it, uh, people living with AIDS were the object of disdain. Um, in the 80s, we also coined uh, uh, an, alt, uh, an additional epidemic. Uh, we said we, we also have an epidemic that we called afraids, acute fear regarding AIDS. And so there was enormous anxiety. There was enormous anxiety among uh, healthcare providers like uh, uh, physicians and nurses. Uh, who often were uh, very anxious about the possibilities uh, and unclear about the vectors of, of transmission themselves. Um, so uh, there were many ways in which people with AIDS were marginalized. Uh, people thought you could um, uh, 
uh, acquire uh, the uh, become infected with the virus uh, by casual contact. Um, and uh, people were often left uh, uh, on their own, abandoned by their families, uh, which is why grassroots organizations arose to provide uh, AIDS care, the so-called AIDS service organizations. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Tom Lawrence Long, Associate Professor in Residence in the Yukon School of Nursing. Yukon has uh, three exhibitions at the university um, that's opened uh, in the fall, looking back uh, 35 years since the discovery of HIV-AIDS. If you have a question or comment, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Where We Live. Uh, Tom, you mentioned that at, for a time you were uh, a priest. You were also a gay man. What led you to leave the priesthood? Well, it, you know, it, it's interesting, Lucy. Uh, you know, um, you're not old enough to know this, but you can spend decades sorting out why you did something and decades sorting out why you decided to stop doing something. Um, so a few years ago, uh, uh, my answer to that question, I formulated it very simply. I left the ministry and the church because of women and sex. <laughs> I, 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 I found myself in irreconcilable differences with the Roman Catholic Church on a whole range of issues related to gender and sexuality, including birth control, artificial contraception for married people, divorce and remarried, uh, remarriage, uh, uh, priestly celibacy, uh, the role of gay and lesbian people in church, a whole range of, of issues. Uh, so, so I've boiled it down to that, uh, to that one formulation. I was curious because, you know, obviously when we talk about the importance of safe sex, uh, the tenets in, in the Catholic Church, I mean, you know, they believe, you know, not in pr- promiscuity, sex, wait till sex uh, for marriage, and that's just not the reality. And so seeing, you know, being in the priesthood in the 80s, seeing um, the education around this virus, um, you know, the role of the church, um, when we look at um, the global epidemic of people dying, um, the message that the church sends versus what people are doing in every day. I mean, there's just quite a, a conflict there. Well, there is a conflict. But, you know, Lucy, the, here's the paradox. Um, throughout the, the, the 80s and 90s, uh, according to reliable social science information, Roman Catholics, among all Christian groups, Roman Catholics were among the uh, most pastorally sensitive and, and pastorally supportive people. Um, Roman Catholic healthcare institutions, in many instances, uh, rose to to the challenge of providing uh, adequate health care for people living with AIDS. Uh, so there there are these contradictions and contrasts. I certainly don't want to paint the Roman Catholic Church as being uh, an entirely evil empire, um, uh, but there are these contradictions. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So when we talk about um, this exhibition of the three, I mean, which one do you find yourself drawn to? Well, I, I would be less than loyal to the, uh, uh, ex- uh, the to to the exhibit that I uh, prepared myself. Um, uh, it was uh, I, it was very gratifying to me uh, when last week I finished installing <clears throat> the National Library of Medicine's exhibit, and uh, one of our um, uh, a graduate students, she's a doctoral student of mine, Sajah Jackson, uh, is a uh, a nurse practitioner here in Hartford. Uh, who has been uh, working with uh, uh, HIV-AIDS care and urban health care for the last 30 years. Uh, She contributed a number of uh, the objects on display. 
including things like safer sex uh, packages uh, and uh, promotional and educational materials. Uh, so I'm, I'm very pleased with, with that exhibit in the School of Nursing. We're focusing on 35 years since the discovery of the virus, but it's also the 20th anniversary of a very important milestone in um, the, the path to treating people. Talk about that. Lucy, overnight in 1996, the introduction of, of protease inhibitors and other antiretroviral medications, and you've got speakers uh, later today talking about that, um, overnight what had been a death sentence HIV infection was a death sentence. Overnight, it simply became a, a manageable chronic infection. Complex, of course, but a manageable chronic infection. And that changed the landscape entirely. Uh, I, I had a student at the time, probably about 1997, who said to me, uh, you know, I've spent the last uh, several years preparing to die. And now I have to somehow figure out how to live. So it was a, a, t a tremendous turning point in people's lives. I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Lawrence Long, again, Associate Professor in Residence in the Yukon School of Nursing and curator of the school's Josephine A. Dolan Collection of Nursing History. He joined us today to talk about some current exhibitions at Yukon that trace the progression of HIV-AIDS over the last 35 years. Tom, so nice to meet you. Thank you for Thank coming you, in. Thank you, Lucy. It's been a great pleasure. More information about the exhibitions at Yukon can be found on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Coming up, a conversation with a Connecticut couple. One spouse has HIV, the other is HIV negative. We'll find out how they've navigated the ups and downs of her diagnosis. And later, a researcher will be, tell us, will be here to tell us about the advances in medicine that has given hope to many people living with HIV. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about HIV-AIDS. It's been 35 years since it was discovered. At the time, there were many unknowns and a lot of fear. I watched a lot of NBA with my dad when I was a kid, and I remember that day when Magic Johnson said something that was pretty courageous for the time. It was 1991 when Johnson publicly admitted to being HIV positive, and he admitted to contracting that virus from heterosexual sex. That changed perceptions from a society that believed largely that HIV-AIDS only affected gay men. Someone who can talk about this on a more personal level is Karina Danvers. She's director of the New England AIDS Education and Training Center, regional partner at Yale University AIDS Program. She's also HIV positive. Karina, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Also in studio with me is uh, her husband, Larry Danvers. Welcome to where we live, Larry. Good morning, Lucy. And um, joining us from NPR studios in Washington, D.C., is Dr. Robert Heimer, member of the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS at Yale and a professor at the Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Heimer, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. I'll turn first to Karina. Um, I brought up Magic Johnson's announcement um, because that was two years after, I believe, you found out that you were HIV positive in 1989. Tell us about that moment. Well, just listening to you talk about that moment just gave me goosebumps because I remember being grateful that uh, someone that people weren't going to hate uh, and someone it's men could relate to him, uh, women wanted to be with him, and it was someone who 
people were just really shocked. And it just opened the door for some of us who um, felt that we couldn't tell anyone. Um, He just opened the door for, quite frankly, heterosexual people to be able to talk about HIV AIDS and sort of not normalize it because it shouldn't have been not normalized to begin with. But middle America, so to speak, was able to now see, oh, my goodness, this is a a disease that can uh, hurt all of us and it can infect all of us. And uh, it it was so courageous. He, I have always said, I always do this in presentations, I think Magic Johnson saved thousands, if not millions of lives around the world by having uh, come out as early as he did. So at that time, you knew for about two years that you were HIV positive? Yeah, by uh, exactly uh, um, uh, almost two years. I was diagnosed in October 10th, 1989 in uh, Orange, Connecticut. So right here on the post road in Orange, Connecticut. Um, and I, Monday morning at 9 a.m., uh, I was actually working at the School of Medicine at the time. Uh, and I received the phone call from my doctor to let me know I was HIV positive. In those days, the t- test to get the results back took about three weeks mm. because you actually, they had to mail the blood out of state to New Jersey to actually have it confirmed for a positive test. Nowadays, you can find out within 20 minutes, uh, and it's free <laughs> in most places, uh, or your insurance can cover it. Um, and you don't have to be afraid of having health insurance. or It's just, it's such a difference. It's such a difference. And uh, this time of year is very... Um, um, emotional for me because my whole journey with HIV really started on September 26, 1989, and it sort of ended by my diagnosis on October 10th of 1989. So it's almost been 30 years. What prompted you to get tested? The only thing that prompted me, because I was one of those people who said by 1992, we're all going to know somebody who is HIV positive. But when I would look at myself in the mirror, not once that I thought I would be one of those people. Why? Because I was heterosexual. Um, I had had uh, only a couple partners. Um, and the only thing, uh, the only reason I got tested is because my ex-husband's mom called me and she told me that um, my ex-husband was dying of AIDS and that his doctor thought I should get tested since I was of uh, childbearing age. Uh, that was it. I had no symptoms. Probably by now I was infected for about five years. Uh, most likely I got infected in 1984. I had no symptoms. I had no reason. But at the same time, I did not put myself in that category of those people who could be HIV positive. Um, if she wouldn't have called me, I probably would have been an individual who ended up in the hospital symptomatic uh, with AIDS, not just HIV positive, but a diagnosis of AIDS. And in those days, um, most likely I wouldn't have survived. So um it's 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 in, but but that story in 2016 is still happening right here in our wonderful state that has so many so many amazing programs in 2016 if you don't test and if you don't know that you are HIV positive you are going to end up in that floor at one hospital uh in in Connecticut um with full you know uh symptomatic with AIDS symptoms. So it, it's I know it's a 1989 story, but really it's a 2016 story if people don't know their HIV status. And we're going to talk more uh, later about um, ways to continue to prevent the spread of this virus. I wanted to turn now to, again, Dr. Robert Heimer, member of the Center for Interdisciplinary Research at AIDS, on AIDS at Yale. Um, from a researcher's perspective, Dr. Heimer, Talk to us about the understanding of of HIV-AIDS and how that has evolved over the past 35 years. 
Well, I think the previous guests have uh, have alluded to it, but when AIDS first emerged, it was a disease in which people were uh, healthy one week, sick the next, and 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 dead a month later, and it it terrified people within the the communities that were most affected. And we we haven't yet talked about people who inject drugs as one of the the most affected communities. And certainly in Connecticut and in the big cities of Connecticut at that time, uh, most of the HIV cases were related to unsafe uh, injection drug use. Um, So one of the things that Connecticut did very early on uh, in 1990 was to... uh, experiment with uh, syringe exchange programs to curtail the transmission of HIV as a as a prevention measure. Uh, Connecticut actually led the way nationally in, in doing this one, being one of the first three or four places in the country to have legalized programs. You mentioned needle exchange. I think we saw just in the last couple of years, was it Indiana that um, there was some hesitancy uh, to have the needle exchange program and then they saw a rise in HIV AIDS? There is still, across the nation, massive uh, barriers to, to needle exchange programs in many places where they're necessary. Uh, federal funding for needle exchange programs has been um, unavailable for most of the 35-year history of HIV um, through uh, legislation imposed upon uh, health departments and, and, and aid service organizations uh, by federal law. Uh, local governments, state governments have stepped up to fill some of the gap, but there are still many places like Scott County, Indiana, where once HIV enters communities of people who are at risk, there's a a large-scale epidemic spread of this virus before people come to their senses. That finally happened uh, in Indiana, but... uh, you know, Mike Pence, our, our Republican uh, candidate for vice president, was was opposed to needle exchange for for as long as can you know as long as he's been on record, and only changed when uh, when the pressure became very intense. And it's terrible that the pressure that has to you know come has, is at the cost of people getting infected, hundreds of people. Can we talk about the the evolution of treatment? I'll I'll turn back to Karina, who found out in 1989 um, that you were positive for HIV. So what was available to you then, and obviously compare it to what we have today? My goodness. Um, The only thing available uh, that was FDA-approved was AZT. Uh, And unfortunately, um, a great drug at the time. uh, It was the only thing. It saved many lives. Unfortunately, I was one of those individuals who AZT, just side effects were just too much to to take. And unfortunately, I only lasted barely three months on AZT, and then I had to stop taking it. Um, So it was not for another uh, four years since uh, the next drug came out, Xeret D4T, and I was able to do very well. But then that only lasted for two years. And the, and many people will, who are HIV positive from the 80s can relate to the story, which is we tried one drug and then it became resistant. We tried another drug because we started with monotherapy. Now we know that monotherapy doesn't work. Um, but now, I mean, I'm on this uh, new regimen of three medications. And, and quite frankly, it's just astounding to me that I don't even have any side effects from it. Um, it's just unbelievable the past 10 years how we gone from unable to even live with the medications because the side effects were so uh, uh, bad, although they saved our lives, uh, to really taking really important 
potent medications and really not even feel like you're taking them. Uh, so really uh, great strive. So anybody who's HIV positive, afraid that they have heard the stories about the side effects from the medications, I can really honestly tell you that in the past 10 years, we've just done tremendous work. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about HIV AIDS. Karina Danvers is in studio. She's HIV positive. Also, uh, she is a director of the New England AIDS Education and Training Center. Karina, you're here with your husband, Larry. I'm curious, um, tell us a, a little bit about your love story, Larry. I'm putting you on the spot now. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, we met back in the early 90s. And uh, at the time, we were just friends, and I did not know of uh, Karina's HIV status. Um, and we later became involved with each other romantically, and that's when she revealed to me her HIV status. And to me, that was quite a shock, because at that time, I, I just understood uh, HIV to be a death sentence, you know, as we uh, others have discussed. And that was very difficult, entering into a relationship with someone who you assumed would be only around for a year or two. So that was, you know, I wasn't as concerned with the, you know, because once Karina did reveal to me her HIV status, you know, I became aware of how much knowledge she had gained. She had done a lot to educate herself and become involved with it. It wasn't the actual fear of the physical infection that bothered me because she was knowledgeable and, and knew how to prevent that. It was the emotional strain of, you know, becoming involved in a relationship that you felt was doomed to end within a year or two. So that, that was a very difficult place to face. So um, when did you reach that turning point where you could see yourself <laughs> retiring happily? Yeah, that's, that's a good point you make because, you know, in the first, let's say, four or five years of our relationship, we had discussions about how we'd do her funeral, what she wanted, you know, end of life, you know, how to be, what treatments to give her towards, you know, the death, you know, you might say we were, it was impending, to now our discussions are about retirement, saving for, you know, that future. And it's just been a wonderful transition. In the first few years, as Karina was talking about getting on a monotherapy, the drug would fail. You know, she'd get on a medication, things would improve, she'd get back some T-cells, her viral load would go down. And next thing you know, the drug would fail and we'd be just facing that impending doom again. But we've been very fortunate. And I must admit, it's sort of been put really in the back of my mind in the last 10 years that uh, the miraculous change that we've gone through, it's, it's just really warming. Larry, we talked a little bit about uh, stigma uh, for people who have been struggling uh, with HIV uh, and AIDS uh, throughout the years. But for someone um, who's in a relationship with someone who's HIV positive, um, if you mention that to people, I mean, how did they respond to you? I didn't, frankly, in the first, you know, 10, 15 years we were together. No, I didn't mention it to people. It would just, it felt like, A, it was a very private thing for one thing, you know, discussing it. But secondly, I was afraid of reactions. And, you know, one story I can tell you is, uh, I have two now adult children who were from a previous marriage, and we were very careful not to have my ex-wife at the time find out that Karina was HIV positive because we were afraid she would try and put barriers towards the children visiting us. And um, then when we finally did tell my uh, youngest daughter, it was like 
oh, I know, she said, <laughs> which was really amazing. You know, she hadn't, when she'd found out that Corinne was HIV positive by Googling her, um, <laughs> it had not changed her opinion at all, which was, you know, that's the change we've seen, I think, particularly in the younger generation who now have grown up with the Magic Johnsons and people like that being uh, out and knowing that, A, it's not a death sentence, and B, it's something you just have to deal with, you know. Uh, Dr. Heimer is also a professor at the Yale School of Public Health. Um, you heard Larry talking about how he's seen the, the shift in public opinion. Uh, what do you believe, Dr. Heimer, has uh, changed people? How has, What do you believe has helped, I guess, change people's perceptions of this virus and disease? Oh. I'm not sure the perceptions have have changed all that much in in many places. Uh, I think there's still a, a good deal of of stigma around around HIV. That uh, there are places where it is difficult to uh, admit it. I, I I appreciate the benefits of the Affordable Care Act, which has um, allowed AIDS not to be seen as a a a pre you know a, a pre-existing condition that might result in loss of 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 insurance um which has certainly been a benefit um and the disabilities act which is which was supposed to do the same thing earlier um but i i'm not sure that it has changed all that much it is just much below the radar because it is a chronic disease now and not an acute disease with so visible a death toll mm. but there are probably places and we are exploring this uh, through our work at CIRA, that is trying to find just where such pockets of disease are still uh, festering, ex existing, in ways that we can bring the resources that do exist in states like Connecticut and Rhode Island and Massachusetts to bear on on the disease that's not being effectively treated. Uh, you know, Karine is very correct that if you get treatment, your viral load will most likely be undetectable. You can proceed with a normal life, but that, that those steps from getting from starting with getting people tested to getting people in care to getting people adherent to their to their medications so that their viral load becomes undetectable is not a straightforward set of steps. There are plenty of barriers there, including way, the ways resources are allocated, and and so we're working to try to identify and at least nine of the small cities in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, where those barriers exist spatially, uh, where the stigma still exists, where people are, are reluctant to, to come into contact it, with, with care systems, with treatment systems, with prevention systems. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to head to break. When we come back, we'll learn more from Dr. Hymer about the medical advances in treating HIV-AIDS, and we'll find out how the virus is still disproportionately affecting particular populations. Are you living with HIV? Have you seen perceptions change about the virus or AIDS? Or do you still wrestle with that stigma? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, zero tolerance policies send a strong message to students, but at what cost? 
On the next Where We Live, we examine how over time these policies have led to suspensions and expulsions for minor issues. What's the long-term impact on a child's future? Join the conversation. That's on Where We Live Thursday. Today we're talking about HIV-AIDS. It's been 35 years since the virus was discovered. More than 1.2 million people in the U.S. are living with HIV today, according to the CDC. One in eight of them don't know they have the virus. In studio with me is Karina Danvers, director of the New England AIDS Education and Training Center, regional partner at Yale University AIDS Program, her husband, Larry Danvers, and Dr. Robert Heimer, a member of the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS at Yale and a professor at the Yale School of Public Health. He joins us from the studios of NPR's headquarters in Washington, D.C. Before the break, Karina, I mentioned, you know, there's still the virus and the disease are still impacting um, particular populations. Can you tell us about the groups most prone to infection here in the U.S.? Uh, in the U.S. and Connecticut, uh, it's uh, men who have sex with men, uh, minority men, black, Hispanic. It's really uh, the numbers are going up, and they've been going up for the past few years. Uh, younger, um, also, too, in certain parts of uh the country, Florida, for example, the older also population, uh, the numbers percentage-wise uh, are also going up. Um, so, but right here in our state, and, spe- and specifically in Connecticut, men who have sex with men, minority black, uh, Hispanic men. Uh, however, um, once again, those are the bulk of the numbers, but nevertheless, we're still having uh, other, most of, basically anyone um, who has unprotected sex. Uh, as Dr. Heimer said, substance use is a big um, risk, too. Um, we've done a great job in Connecticut, uh, as uh, Dr. Heimer was saying. We've done a really great job with the substance abuse population. But nevertheless, there's still pockets uh, available. You mentioned uh, young gay men. Um, why is there um, more diagnosis in that population? You know, um, historically, I guess I think it's a it's a. Uh, and Dr. Hyman can speak more of this, but um, we just, I think we forget. We forget history. Uh, we forget history, and we forget what uh, has happened. Also, too, um, younger people are really just, unfortunately, you know, uh, at that when we're young, we just think we're invincible, and um, and we take more uh, risks. Dr. Hyman, did you want to add something? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that, that, research has has revealed is that people end up uh, becoming more adherent to prevention after they become HIV infected. Mm -hmm. It it seems counterintuitive. You'd think you'd want to protect yourself. But it turns out that people who are not infected are much more likely when, when you know, involved with intervention programs that have tried to get them to change their behaviors. They don't do that. They continue with risky behaviors. They do change once they get infected. They're much more interested, it seems, in preventing other people from getting infected than initially protecting themselves. Um, why this is, I'm, I still find a, a fascinating topic of, 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 of necessary research. Uh, why can't why does second what's called secondary prevention working with people who are already HIV who are all, who are already HIV positive work so much better than working with people who are still at risk of becoming infected? But I can't answer that question. <laughs> you know, doctor, you know, Robert. I don't know if you agree with me, but I just think it's really difficult for people to think that they 
could possibly be infected with this disease who really it's always been put in such a shadow of they versus us. Um, I, you know, usually when I do presentations, and I'm sure this is true of you, um, I, I talk to nursing students, I, anyone who will listen, I'll, I'll talk to. And I always say, how many of you really, truly believe that you could become HIV positive? And maybe one or two hands go up. So it's really that, that perception that there's no way they belong in this category. Um, it, just like me. I mean, I really thought that this category was never going to touch my life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just really difficult for people to really believe that they can be touched by this disease. So drill it down for us. Remind people, how, are, how is this virus transmitted? Okay. Sex. And what's important about sex is that everybody has a very definition of what sex is. So it really has to be, I always talk about the plumbing. Uh, um, so it's vaginal, anal, oral, although there haven't been any diagnosis uh, data. And Robert, you can... Uh, uh, back me up on this, uh, oral sex transmission, but anal and and vaginal fluids. Um, So kissing, no data on transmission there either. So um, those are the uh, substance use, uh, needle, needle, not only the needle, not only the syringe, but the works too, the the cotton, the the cooker. Um, So those are... um, Key way, uh, also mother to uh, mother to child transmission, which of course in Connecticut we haven't had a positive child in I think over ten years, um, especially specifically because we have a law in Connecticut that tests all the uh, if you're pregnant, uh, you go to your doctor. This is for women who get prenatal care, and they will te- they will ask you to test for HIV. And women don't seem to ever decline being tested for HIV. So, and then they get tested the last trimester because you know women, pregnant women, actually have sex while they're pregnant, so they could become HIV positive. Um, so, um, so those are the 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 modes of transmission: uh, uh, vaginal, uh, anal sex. And I always say it's not gay or straight sex. Anal sex. Uh, there's heterosexual couples who also practice anal sex. So it's just about the plumbing. It's really not about. Um, uh, pe- putting people in categories about homosexual or heterosexuals. I wanted to bring into but, the conversation. Oh, go ahead, Dr. Heimer. Then I, I would like to add one thing about why why gay men seem to be so so much at risk. Some of my colleagues at Yale have been working on on trying to understand this, and in thinking about it, um, I think what they're concluding is that for many gay men, there's 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 probably more stigma related to being gay. Than there is to um, to being HIV positive because HIV positive you can, it's treatable you know um, being gay puts you at certain disadvantages in in society despite the progress that we've made with gay marriage and 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 in other areas of 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 life but there's still a great deal of stigma about not conforming to the male stereotype and and when you're young and you're and you're trying to deal with this issue, um, sex is a release from that. And so that may explain why why unprotected sex is still so common uh, in and HIV transmission still are occurring at such a high rate in, in, young, in young communities of men who have sex with men. We're getting a tweet uh, from Sean who writes, we don't have gay hubs anymore and social media apps are how young men who have sex with men connect. It makes prevention challenging. I wanted to bring into the conversation now LaToya Tyson. She's Prevention Program Manager at AIDS Connecticut. LaToya, thanks for joining us by phone. 
Thank you for having me. Um, I'm sure you're able to hear part of the discussion. Karina was saying that, you know, there's still that belief out there that, you know, a lot of people think this virus, there's no way I'm going to get HIV. Talk us through when you found out you were HIV positive. I was 19. It was February 18th of 1999. And I had been in a five-year relationship. So it was um, very devastating for me because, you know, back then, we still had a misconception of who and, you know, what kinds of people contracted the virus. I was not considered um, a high-risk individual. And so to have that status, you know, being placed on me was uh, very detrimental to my my mental health at the time. And, And how did you move forward when you got that diagnosis? A lot of prayer. <laughs> um, I'm a very spiritual person, and so um, I had to do a lot of um, introvert, you know, introversion, um, introspection um, about myself, um, about the role I played in contracting the virus, um, and learning how to forgive not only my partner for being dishonest with me, but myself for decisions that I made and choices that I made. When you found out you were um, HIV positive, you also had two children at the time? I did. So how did your family react? Um, Very horribly, actually. Um, I am my mother's only daughter, and their perception of HIV um, was very skewed because as far as my family knew, they didn't know anyone that was HIV positive before me. So my mother was extremely devastated, and for the first time in my um, almost 40 years of life, um, I had actually seen my mother cry, and I had to become the educator in my house um, because she immediately, once she got over that initial shock, um, thought and and actually said out loud to me things like, um, you know, washing my clothes separate and buying me plastic silverware and utensils and things. And and she was very explicit about me not kissing my son for fear that I would, you know, give them the virus as well. Um, But I had to first become an educator internally, educate myself about the virus, uh, about exactly what's going on in my body, how it's affecting me, how it transmits and versus how it doesn't, and then in turn do the same to my family. Uh, We know that the virus disproportionately affects minority groups, particularly members of the African-American community. You said that you're an educator with uh, AIDS Connecticut. Tell us why this virus is still impacting um, African-Americans this way. Just culturally speaking, um, there, I think, are a lot of different factors. Um, Women especially um, have a tendency to leave their sexual health in the hands of their partners. Um, believing that that is their responsibility as the man. Um, Culturally, we're kind of taught that. Um, In terms of MSM, um, homosexuality or homosexual behaviors um, are extremely, extremely taboo. And in a lot of different African-American cultures, um, you can even be killed because of it. And so um, people just don't – they would rather – do their stuff behind closed doors and not actually have conversations with their partners about what their preferences are or, you know, what their practices are and what they prefer. So I think there are lots of different factors, um, including um, limited access to health care and things like that, um, and, to, and even to education for that matter. 
because you're an educator with AIDS Connecticut, lots of different events that you hold to, to you know, send the word out to the community about prevention and treatment. Can you talk about some coming up? Oh, there are quite a few coming up. Um, of course, um, some of the colleges um, have called us. So um, Central Connecticut um, State University has called um, to ask us to go out there. Um, so has Eastern. Um, we also have, of course, World AIDS Day that's coming up on December 1st, and um, we're going to be doing a lot of things there. Um, it's kind of difficult to tell you where because, you know, folks call us, you know, in a week and they want us to go somewhere, you know, the next the next week. So, you know, we're always taking um, our request um, very seriously about going into different venues. Um, we recently were in a couple of the y, um, YMCA's here in um, Hartford. Um, we've actually gone into a couple of the churches recently. So we're all over the place. Well, I do want to thank you, LaToya, for calling in, and um, we're glad to hear that you're doing well so many years after um, your diagnosis. Um, on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, we're going to have information on an AIDS walk that's coming up from AIDS Connecticut. LaToya, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I did want to turn back to Karina. Um, because we're talking about prevention and just with the, um, the evolution of, of certain treatments available, something called PrEP. Can you talk about that? Oh, PrEP, Yes. Uh, well, uh, it was approved by the FDA in 2012, and it's uh, right, right now it's only one drug that's been approved, Truvada, and it's pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it's basically it's the same kind of medications that uh, we take as HIV-positive individuals, but this medication, pre-exposure, is for people who are HIV-negative who want to prevent from um, acquiring HIV. It's not 100%. Um, it's uh, 96%. Um, and it has to be taken every day, although there is other trials going to see what's called PrEP on demand, uh, which is a special schedule when you take it, if you know when you're about to have sex. Um, it's shown to be very promising from um, uh, people getting infected with HIV. Uh, some might think, some might consider that, for example, Larry and I would be uh, a good um, candidate for that since I'm positive and my husband is negative. And I'm going to embarrass my husband right now. And um, he is, um, since the data has come out about being undetectable, if you're HIV positive, undetectable, and you are adherent to your medication and you've been undetectable for a while, that they're saying that transmission could be next to zero uh, without protection. And so if you add PrEP to, for example, our relationship, it basically, you can never say zero, but it would be almost impossible to transmit the virus. My husband would very much would like to do that. And... I'm a product of the 80s. I saw too much death and destruction and the thought that I could infect someone even if there is almost negligible uh, chance. Um, for me, condoms in my lifetime will not come off. However, PrEP is a great tool for people who um, would like to take that extra precaution. PrEP actually, uh, Truvada, uh, the, the medication, is actually... Uh, recommended to use along with condoms, so this is not supposed to be. Uh, however, most people are using it without the without the condoms. And I, we're almost out of time. I want to turn back to Dr. Robert Heimer. Um, you know, we've been hearing a lot about the, just the breakthroughs over the last uh, 35 years. Um, because you're a researcher, you know, what's happening right now that really excites you about how we're going to continue to treat this virus? Well, I think I think right now we have a, a cocktail of of three drugs for treating the 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 disease that work extremely well. Uh, 
the current regimens include enzymes that prevent the conversion of the viral RNA, the, the, the genetics of, of the virus. The, the genes are encoded in RNA that has to be converted to a DNA copy before an infection can, can take root. We have drugs that prevent that step. Then the DNA has to be inserted into the, the host chromosomes. We have drugs that block that step. That's the, that's, those are the drugs involved in the current regimen. But I think what's most important change is when we start treatment. Right now, uh, the, the, the guidelines are if you are HIV positive, you should be in treatment. It used to be we waited till some threshold uh, that you crossed in terms of the disease progression before we started you on treatment. That's no longer the case. We detect the virus in you. We treat you. That's that those should occur in lockstep. Um, as Karina was saying earlier, these drugs have so little side effect that we don't have to worry about the negative effects, about the drugs becoming ineffective. So we might as well treat now everybody who's positive. That will also prevent secondary transmissions from, from the people who are infected. If their viral load is undetectable, um, then the virus will not be spread to others. So get tested, get, get treated, uh, and enjoy sex. <laughs> we'll have to leave it there. Not a bad place to end it. <laughs> Dr. Robert Heimer, member of the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS at Yale, a professor at the Yale School of Public Health. Thank you also to Karina Danvers and Larry Danvers. Thank you so much for sharing your story. We'll continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.